So this week we're going to talk about neurological disorders. And before we get started, one of the first things I want to talk about is making sure that you do read the entire chapter. So chapter 33 in the Pediatric Acute Care book, there's um, four topics that I did not mention in this lecture, but I do feel that they're important for you to review. There definitely may be a question or two on the exam uh, related to these topics. And that's going to be discussing the neuro, uh, neurological physiology and diagnostic tests, looking at brain death and organ donation, uh, hypotonia in the infant, as well as cerebral palsy. Now, also before talking about all the different disorders, many of the disorders within neurology may impact increased cranial pressure or increased intracranial pressure. And one of the major principles that we talk about with increasing intra increased intracranial pressure is the Monroe-Kelly Doctrine. Now, this doctrine basically states that your head is a box. And if you think about your head being a box, it's only made up of three components, and that is brain tissue, blood, and cerebral spinal fluid. If one of those components increases, then the other two must decrease to maintain the same pressure. So for example, you have a child that's in a car accident, has a traumatic brain injury. If the brain swells, then the blood or the CSF have to be reduced to maintain normal ICPs. And those would be our directed um, treatments to try to help that child maintain those um, ICPs. Same thing if you had someone with hydrocephalus had increased CSF, you may want to try to reduce the amount of blood. We'd give them osmotic diuretics to reduce the volume in the brain. Sometimes you can do, for some traumatic brain injury patients, you can do craniectomies to where you open up the box and you allow the brain to move outside the box a little bit to make room for these other components. Another principle that we want to talk about with increased intracranial pressure is cerebral perfusion pressure. So your cerebral perfusion pressure is the amount of pressure required to perfuse the brain. And we measure this by looking at your mean arterial pressure off of your blood pressure, and we subtract it from your ICP. Now, if you don't have an ICP and you have normal conditions, meaning you don't have any other increase in compartment pressures, no intra-abdominal pressure, no intrathoracic pressure, then you can use your CVP because so, your CVP and your ICP should be about the same under normal conditions. And then we want to target our um, CPPs or cerebral, cerebral perfusion pressures around 50 to 60. And, you know, the younger the child, they're going to have lower mean arterial pressures. Um, we may allow them, like say for smaller infants, we may have um, CPP uh, guidelines of about 45 or so um, to main, maintain those cerebral perfusion pressures. The normal pressure for all of us walking around is anywhere between 70 and 100 millimeters of mercury. Now, moving forward, I'm going to talk about multiple disorders, neurological disorders, and many of them have similar symptoms, such as headaches, seizures, nausea, vomiting, altered, you know, changes in levels of consciousness. And so when we have a child with any of those type of symptoms, we want to investigate further. So you want to ask further questions. You want to look for certain things. You may want to draw additional lab work. Um, you may want to provoke more questions to the family to try to get a better understanding of what's going on. Now, that being said, let's talk about altered mental status. Now, this, again, in itself is a symptom rather than a disorder. And we can assess the locations of the brain based on the changes in their mental status. For example, if someone has a lesion in the right or left hemispheres, 
They may have changes in their behavior. They may not act. They may not be acting the way they normally are. They may be more agitated or more aggressive than they normally are. If someone has changes in their reticular activating system, they may have changes in level of consciousness. They may have uh, decreased effects to stimulation. Um, they may also have changes in the patterns in which they sleep. And someone with a lesion somewhere around the brainstem, not only will they have doll's eye or dilated pupils, but they may also have changes in their vital signs. So these patients may have respiratory changes, cardiovascular changes, uh, changes in their blood pressure may become very hypotensive. So these are things that you want to start looking for and start digging. So you may have someone that has a change in their mental status, um, and you might be able to you know, project where these issues are, but you want to encompass looking at the whole picture as well. So with these presentations and with the plan, <clears throat> some of these patients may have, um, first of all, let me back up a second. Anyone that has an altered mental status, the first thing you want to do is assess their ABCs, right? You want to assess their airway, their breathing, and their circulation. And the rule of thumb in the trauma areas or patients that have an altered mental status, if their Glasgow Coma score is less than eight, they need to be intubated. So you'll hear the saying, less than eight, intubate. So you want to do definitely with these patients, you want to do a Glasgow Coma score and a very good neurological exam. You want to assess their cranial nerves, look at deep tendon reflexes, sensory, motor function, their, their gait. All those things are important when assessing these patients. Now, if someone is hyper alert and agitated, then you want to start looking, did they have any kind of ingestion? Did they take any different medications? Or is there some kind of psychological process going on? Do they have some type of uh, mental disorder that's now starting to manifest itself with these changes in their mental status? Also, you know, if someone has a reduced alertness, say they're more lethargic or obtunded, you want to check other things. So the first thing I would do is send off a slew of labs. And I want to look specifically at their electrolytes. You know, is there a drop in their sodium? Are they hyponatremic? And now they're, you know, there's a change here and they're going to start seizing or they started seizing. Um, you also want to assess their, um, their liver function as well as their renal function. So someone who has an elevated ammonia level may come in with a change in their alertness. They may be more lethargic or encephalopathic kind of thing. You also want to check their sugar, right? So if I look at someone who's seizing, the two labs that are going to be the most important to me is their blood sugar, right? Because a, a child can seize if their blood sugar drops too low, and their sodium. If they had a rapid drop in their sodium, they can also seize. So those are the two electrolytes that I would find to be most important to look at. Also, if I have someone that is looking infectious, right? Say they have a fever and there's a change in their mental status. Now I want to do some, maybe some more labs. I'll check a CBC, right? I might check a, a CRP. I may check a, um, a urine sample, Just send off some cultures, do an LP, so those are things that I think, or procalcitonin is another lab nowadays that we're looking at to see if there's some type of infectious process. And then if they do look lethargic, I may want to send off some toxicology, right? Did they ingest something? You know, is this child taking a drug? Did they overdose on someone's medication at home? And that will help me determine whether I need to, you know, look at other causes for this change. Is there any recent traumas? You know, did the child fall last month pretty hard and hit his head and now he's having these changes? I might be worried about a head bleed. You know, was there a recent car accident or, or, uh, or non-accidental trauma? Those kind of things you want to know. And you may, now that, you know, that you're looking at these different traumas or with any of these, you may want to do some head imaging, right? If someone doesn't look right and their mental status is pretty 
uh, significantly impacted, you may have to do a CT or an MRI to determine if there's a bleed or some type of ischemic change um, within the brain. And then lastly, as far as, you know, you know, evaluating these patients, you know, the EEG can give you a lot of information as well. You can have someone that could be subclinically seizing that may not have tonic-clonic type movements, but, you know, in their obtunded state or their decreased alerted state, they can have some underlying uh, subclinical seizures. Um, so all this information here is uh, things that you want to look at, not only as far as presentation, but also in their plan. The next disorder we'll talk about are arterial venous malformations. Now, these are congenitally malformed artery to vein connections. And they're, they're outside the normal arterioles and venules in the capillary beds. It's often referred to as the bag of worms. And some of these lesions can actually steal blood from your healthy brain um, that are adjacent to the AVM. The vein of Galen malformation is probably one of the most popular accounts for about 30% of these vascular malformations. Now, these presentations, most common finding is, is, is an intracranial bleed. So sometimes they don't manifest at all until there's a real problem. So these patients may have periodic headaches, they may have some nausea, vomiting, or their first symptom may be that they had a brain bleed. And then, you know, investigating further, they'll see these AVM malformations. Um, other symptoms, you know, on their presentation could be a decrease in level of consciousness, nuchal rigidity, focal neurological deficits, or seizures, both focal and generalized. Our diagnostics that we're going to do, a CT scan um, without contrast is the initial diagnostic evaluation because this will give us the opportunity to look to see if there's a true bleed. So CT scans are very good about telling us about um, bleeds and hematologic changes in the brain parenchyma, not the best studies for ischemic changes. And that's where an MRI or an MRA may become more beneficial um, for evaluation. Again, we can do CT angiography to look at blood flow to see and evaluate this bag of worms or these malformations. And then the um, other lab work that we'll want to look at are the CBC coags. And if there's a head bleed for any patient, no matter their age, you want to get a type in screen um, in case they need to go to the operating room to have, you know, evacuations or any type of uh, surgical procedures to be prepared for that. The other thing you need to, um, and I underlined this and bolded it out for you, <clears throat> you will never ever do an LP unless we know that there, um, there is no space occupying lesions and there's no increased intracranial pressure. So if there is a suspicion of increased intracranial pressure, um, we're not going to do an LP. And often we'll have to do a CT scan to look to see if there, is in, if there are findings of increased intracranial pressure on imaging to determine whether or whether or not we're going to do that, that LP. So now, um, not just for the arterial venous malformation, I put here the plan for all patients with increased intracranial pressure. And we're going to treat ICP the same um, for someone who has, say, a, a traumatic brain injury or someone that has a space-occupying lesion or an AVM or a head bleed. There are There are... There are methods and treatment plans you can follow to help reduce that, that increase in cranial pressure. And I put this um, into two separate lines. So the top line are like the non-invasive things, right? So the first thing, the easiest thing the bedside nurse can do is put the patient head straight, you know, you know, in a midline position so that the head isn't kinked to either side, cutting off blood flow or venous drainage from the head. So that's super easy. You can elevate the head of the bed. So 45 degree angle is often recommended. It's most often put in the order sets for patients with increased intracranial pressure. 
And again, you're allowing for gravity to help with venous drainage um, from the head. And then we can keep these patients normal thermic, normal carbic. Um, and then when I say normal carbic, you know, uh, a CO2 of 35 to 45 is normal. We can keep them normal at first. And if we feel that that isn't helpful, we can slightly make them a bit more hypocarbic, right? Because the lower the CO2, the more CO2 you blow off, the more you vasoconstrict the blood vessels in your brain, which allows for more space. When we go back to that Monroe-Kelly doctrine, if I reduce the size of the blood vessels, if I make them more constricted, then I allow for more space in the brain to drop that pressure. So by dropping their CO2 from, say, you know, some 35 to, say, 30, or keep it between 30 and 35, um, I can help make some changes there. Um, then we can move on to some of our invasive procedures or treatments. So the first thing we could do um, is give them a diuretic. So the most common um, osmolar therapy nowadays is hypertonic saline or mannitol. Um, mannitol is an osmotic diuretic. It's a large sugar molecule that helps draw fluid into the intravascular space, which then allows you to pee off the excess volume that's, that's entered the, the, the vascular system. And then hypertonic saline kind of mimics and does the same thing in which it creates this large solute um, into the bloodstream to help draw out fluid that, again, allows you to pee it off in the kidneys. And again, these are two major components that we look at when we look at our um, uh, calculated osmolarity, right? So when we do osmolar therapy, we want to make sure that we're measuring the, the, the serum osmol or the calculated osmol throughout their therapy um, when we're caring for them. The next thing we could do, and this is kind of depending on how sick the patient is, because you could probably do seizure, prophylaxis, sedation, and analgesia first, right? Or you can do the, 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 the CSF diversion. So the CF, the CSF diversion would be like an intracranial pressure monitor that allows you to pull off fluid at the same time. So you have the ability to evacuate CSF to help lower the, the intracranial pressure. And again, looking back at the Monroe Kelly doctrine, now we can remove CSF to help reduce the pressure that's inside the box. And your seizure prophylaxis, again, is going to help reduce that pressure within the, the, in the brain, um, keeping the brain nice and comfortable. Sedation and analgesia will do the same. A lot of our barbiturates will help reduce um, their ICP by making the patient put in a more um, sedated state. And then, of course, one of the, the, the last things we could do is we can open up the skull itself and evacuate any type of hematomas. And that may be, you know, depending on the severity of your AVM, that might be the first option. Um, but again, when I look at, when I think about this and I'm trying to explain it to people and I'm explaining it to my nursing staff or my colleagues, I'd like to think non-invasive first and then move down to my invasive um, measures. Now, our plan for these patients definitely will be consultation. Um, so, of course, you're going to have to notify the entire neurological team. That's from the neurologist, the pediatric neurosurgeon. You may have to get involved, a pediatric vascular neurosurgeon. Uh, neuroradiologists are helpful because they are the specialists in looking at these malformations and looking at the subtle details um, on the various films and studies that we'll be doing. And for some patients, they may even need a radio radiation oncologist to help try to reduce the size of these AVM malformations. Uh, surgical evacuation, especially if there's a significant hemorrhage, might be um, a priority. Uh, they may also require some microsurgical resection. 
Um, they can also have endovascular embolization. So some of these patients, especially in some of your larger centers that have a pediatric vascular surgeon or va pediatric vascular neurologist, um, they, or excuse me, a pediatric vascular neurosurgeon, they can actually go in and put in these uh, coils to help embolize these AVMs to kind of reduce their size and keep them from being problematic. And then your radio surgery could be that <clears throat> high dose radiation to precisely target um, the AVM to reduce its size. Um, the greatest risk for these things to rebleed would be within the first year of diagnosis and treatment. And the prognosis really depends on the location of the AVM, where it's located in the brain, and what's been affected already by the onset of the AVM. Now we'll move on to cerebral vascular accidents. And by definition, this is generally the um, interruption of blood flow to a area of the brain. And there's two types, you know, you have your hemorrhagic or ischemic. I think I believe the textbook calls it occlusive versus hemorrhagic. And um, with your occlusive sites, things that you want to worry about are some type of hypercoagulable state, or there's some type of um, uh, occlusion that prevents blood flow to the brain. And then, obviously, your hemorrhagic could be your aneurysms rupture, your AVMs rupture, uh, vessel rupture, those kind of things. Now, the other problem that occurs with these CVAs is that because there's a decrease in circulating blood volume, now we, can, we have areas of the brain that are going to undergo cell death due to the lack of oxygen and nutrients. And you can also have these osmolar shifts. So now sodium and water movement into the cells lead to additional cerebral edema because there's been an injury and compromised blood flow, which then compounds the issue further, allowing for a more um, intricate inflammatory process, which has more swelling, and now we have an increase in the cranial pressure. So you can see how this can be um, a snowball type of effect. So now our risk factors are any child with congenital heart disease. So anyone that has a communication between the, the right and left heart if there's any type of clot formation that moves over to the right side, puts them at an increased risk for uh, occlusive types of uh, cerebral vascular accidents. Other risk factors include vasculitis or arteriopathies, um, specifically moya moya, sickle cell disease, because again, they have the stockpiling of uh, blood vessels, which causes occlusive type of disorder. And then I put on here this hypocoagulable disorders, and I like putting this um, on this slide specifically because if you ever have to do a hypercoagulable workup, these are all the labs you're going to have to pull up. So this might be something you want to slip into your little black book or your bag of tricks. Um, so if you ever do a hypercoagulable workup, you're going to want to look at your protein C, protein S, your antithrombin 3 deficiencies, your factor 5 luden mutation, your prothrombin gene mutation. Um, I put on here the MTHFR only because that name for that particular um, disorder is super long. And everywhere you look in the literature, as well as for your labs, it's going to be your MTHFR. And if you're interested, it's spelled out in the textbook for you. You also want to look at your antiphospholipid antibodies, um, as well as um, your protein C resistance. Now, in presentation, our neonates may present a little bit different than our older kids. Um, one, they'll have a decrease in responsiveness. Their first presentation may be a seizure or focal weakness. Um, our older children, you know, they may complain of that headache or neck pain. They may complain of visual disturbances or they may become aphasic, meaning they won't be able to communicate to you. Um, and even more obvious signs would be like a, a neurological deficit, a focal, ner 
focal neurological deficit or hemiparesis. When we look at a bleed versus occlusion, again, your symptoms might be um, subtly different. They may have, you know, a, a headache, a very, you know, a very compounding headache, a very sharp headache. Um, they may have um, vomiting, uh, irritability, seizures, hemiparesis. If they're a small child, they, they may have this bulging fontanelle because now you're increasing the space within that box. For your occlusive, the most common presenting symptom or the most common pre presentation that you'll have is a sinus venosis thrombosis. So in the sinus venosis, um, in the cerebral parenchyma, um, if the child becomes severely dehydrated or if there's a significant infection pro infectious process, this is where you will see a clot formation. And when you start working as a nurse practitioner, this is probably the most common finding you will have listed on almost every single head CT on an infant because no radiologist wants to miss this. So if there's anything that subtly looks like a sinus venosis thrombosis, they're going to list it to have you investigate further. And with the neonates, um, some of the issues they'll have is hypertonia. And older children, they can have headaches and motor deficits. Our diagnostic studies, again, if it's a bleed, our CT scan is probably the fastest and easiest method to measure that. If, if you have the ability to do a diffusion-weighted um, MRI, that would probably be an even better exam to give you more information about the bleed, its location, and um, the uh, affected um, uh, structures. For your occlusion, occlusives, you know, your CT is going to be negative and it may be more difficult. So for, for those type of ischemic um, injuries, you want to look at probably an angiogram, CT angiogram, or an MRI uh, angio or venogram, or sometimes both. It really depends on what the, neuro uh, the neurology and uh, neurosurgeon want to want to look for. Um, they can also do a um, an MR spectroscopy. Um, your your angiogram is probably the most helpful for all thrombus and vascular abnormalities. So it may not just necessarily be in the head that they're looking at. They may want to look at other vessel structures, um, like in the neck or the shoulders, to see if there's any type of clot formation there that might be might be seeding further ischemic issues. And then you can look at um, uh, an EEG for seizure activity. Again, that gives uh, gives you a good evaluation if there's subclinical seizures versus um, physical seizures that you can see at the bedside. And then the labs you want to do, again, you want to do a CBC. All the labs I talked about for the hypercoagulable workup, you want to send those, um, coags, uh, homocysteine, cholesterol, triglycerides, and even genetics testing to see if there's any um, other type of um, issues that you might be dealing with. So our plan is to, to make a, a quick and accurate diagnosis as quickly as we can. Um, it was surprising for me to see that the average time from initial symptoms to diagnosis is 35 hours. That's a long time to have someone that's having neurological injury um, prior to you know being fully treated or adequately treated. Now, I didn't list out every single treatment option for all the different possibilities of stroke, such as sickle cell disease, cardioembolic issues, moya-moya, all those different things. The book does a very nice job of breaking those down for you, so please review those to go over all the different um, management options. And then I've also included a, uh, an article on pediatric stroke, which also gives a very detailed plan for those patients. And it talks about everything from starting heparin um, for certain um, conditions like your cardioembolic, you may start an unfractionated heparin, or you may start a low molecular weight heparin prior to going on other types of therapy.
um, you know, and some, from some, some of the other ones, you know, for your occlusive ones, you know, is there surgical intervention versus um, ma medical management, those kind of things. So please review all the different strategies for all the different diseases there um, within that table. Um, again, that's table 3312. Now moving on to encephal uh, encephalopathy. Um, the broad definition is that there's a global dysfunction within the brain that leads to an altered mental status. Now in the book, they also have a nice table of all the different uh, possibilities for that um, for those etiologies, such as hypoglycemia, um, hyperglycemia, uh, electrolyte imbalances, right? You can have hyponatremia, um, hypercalcemia, hypermagnesemia. You can have medications that can be involved, such as your ethanols, your salicylates. Um, they can have organ dysfunction, such as liver, kidney, pancreas, the adrenals. They can have inborn errors of metabolism, um, which can also lead to an elevated ammonia levels or elevated lactate levels. So there's a broad um, possibilities for encephalopathy um, that we have to consider when we evaluate these patients. Other acute causes that can cause encephalopathy, the one that I found to be the most interesting in my time working in the ICU is PRESS. So PRESS stands for Posterior Reversible Encephalopathy Syndrome. And this occurs when a child becomes um, significantly hypertensive. And I've seen this most prevalently in patients with uh, nephrotic syndrome, where they already have a slightly elevated blood pressure, and then their blood pressure increases uh, pretty dramatically, and then they have this altered mental status and these changes, um, and they can have some significant issues. And we treat this um, by doing an MRI to evaluate it. The only way to evaluate for press is through an MRI, and you can get a definitive diagnosis there. You'll treat their blood pressure, and then their symptoms usually start to resolve um, pretty quickly. Um, other causes can be, you know, you can have someone with a stroke, they can have an AVM, they can have other type of occlusive disorders or traumatic brain injury can all lead to some form of an encephalopathy. Their presentation can range from anything from very subtle to very significant, such as seizures, a lot, um, coma, uh, a significant decrease in uh, level of consciousness, cognitive changes. On your physical exam, um, they might be awake, disoriented, they can have seizures, they can be unarousable, um, they can have pupillary changes, nystagmus, um, jerks and, and um, hemiparesis or tremors. Um, they can have heart murmurs, irregular um, heart, um, heart rates, as well as poor perfusion. Your diagnosis is going to be pretty extensive. You're going to do a full CBC, complete metabolic profile with liver function test, ammonias, coags, blood gas, toxicology. Again, you're going to want to try to find and narrow down what your cause is and why you have someone that's presenting with an encephalopathy. Again, your plan is going to include by managing those uh, ABC, so you want to make sure, you know, first and foremost that they have an adequate airway, they're breathing good, and they have good circulation. And if not, you're going to support that first. Um, you may need to protect their airway and intubate them and put them on a vent. You may have to give them uh, fluids, put them on inotropic support. They may need an ICP monitor, or they may need to be managed for their ICP, um, you know, just to kind of help reduce some of these symptoms. With metabolic management, Again, you want to look to see if there's any coagulopathy, any electrolyte derangements. You'll want to treat those. And of course, you'll want to get uh, appropriate um, consultation. So that's anything from neurology, cardiology, rheumatology, genetics, and et cetera.